Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. The FT. Hello, and welcome back to FT Science. This week, we'll be finding out about the impact of marijuana. Can you show in a sample who've never had anything near uh, an expression of psychosis, can you show in these individuals that if they start using cannabis for the first time in their lives that they will have new onsets of uh, psychotic symptoms? And hearing from a sceptical environmentalist. Nobody seemed to learn anything from the failure of Copenhagen. They just met next year in Cancun and said, let's try the same deal over again. I'm Andrew Jack, and you're listening to FT Science. With us in the studio today, we have Tim Flannery, the Australian environmentalist. Hello, Tim. Hello, Andrew. It's good to be here. And from Paris this week, Clive Cookson. Hello, Clive. What are you up to? Hi, Andrew. From a very, very sunny Paris. I'm doing two things here. One is that I'm on the organizing committee for a great European science conference that's going to be held not in Paris, but in Dublin in 2012, ESOF 2012. And then tomorrow I'm going to the French Ministry of Science and Higher Education. And amongst other people there, I'll be meeting Valérie Pécresse, the French science minister, who's been supervising a big increase in funding from the French government for science, a sort of thing that scientists in the UK wish they were receiving from our government. Very good. We'll, we'll come back to uh, some of your discussions later, but let's um, turn first of all to Tim Flannery, normally based in Australia, but in London for a few days, uh, linked to the publication of his new book, Here on Earth, A New Beginning. So Tim, tell us a little bit more about the thesis of the book. Well, the book takes the form of a twin biography, effectively, a biography of our planet Earth and of our species. And the reason that I, I, I took that particular view uh, was that it's at the intersection of those two things that most of our pressing environmental problems arise. And I was really, um, I suppose, I wanted to find out what sort of future we had. Was it going to be a future of gloom and doom, as many environmentalists believe, or was there rational reason for hope? And what do you think? Where, well, do, where do you come down? <laughs> well, I must say I found lots of reason for hope in writing the book. Um, I think that the, uh, the evolutionary process that created us and our Earth has left a legacy of tremendous cooperation and co-evolution um, at the level of everything from our individual bodies to ecosystems to the planet as a whole. And when you look at what is now happening, how evolution is informing the, the, the creation, really, of a global superorganism, which is our species, humanity, um, there really is great reason for hope, because if we start acting globally and are able to se send unequivocal, clear messages to the Earth system, if you want, as, as a global intelligence, uh, then we'll be in an immensely powerful position uh, to, to assist with the, uh, I guess, the creation of a stable, uh, productive Earth. I may be taking too short-term a view, but for me, events, particularly in the US, but also in Europe recently, give me less rather than more hope of 
cooperative behavior. I mean, putting it bluntly, I would say a lot of politicians in America are behaving in a very selfish and uncooperative way vis-a-vis the future of the planet. And Am I just taking too short-sighted a view? I think so, Clive. Sorry to be blunt about it, but I do think you are. The 24-hour news cycle would drive anyone to despair. But if you take a slightly longer perspective, say a decadal perspective or a five-year perspective, and I should say I'm a paleontologist, so even that seems short-term for me, but, but you see that we have made significant progress. Uh, just take climate change, for example. You know, Six years ago, we hadn't heard of an inconvenient truth, and, and most of the public were unaware of the of the, the, the profound implications of climate change. Now, we've come a long way in those six years, and I think if we look six years out or ten years out, we can see that there is uh, uh, a good prospect, I think, of us coming to terms with this issue in the medium term at least. Now, whether we'll do enough to avoid dangerous climate change is very much an open question, um, but I, I don't think we can deny the progress that we've made over the medium term. So if climate change does continue, if we do get more extreme weather and so on... What's the scenario that follows from that which still could lead you to towards optimism? If we trigger significantly uh, dangerous climate change, which leads to a diminution of resources and promotes conflict among power blocks, then I think we will have lost the prospect of progress. Um, but we are seeing two uh, phenomena which are coming together to give me hope. One is the fact that we're starting to address this issue along with a whole lot of other environmental threats. The other is the spread of democracy around the world and with it a diminution in conflict among people. And it's interesting if you look at another superorganism, for example the ants, you know, very sophisticated ant colonies have eradicated conflict within the superorganism. They still fight each other, but within the superorganism, it's it's eradicated. And if you look at the last 60 or 70 years of human history, you see there has, in fact, been a reduction in death in conflict globally. So it may be that there are revolutionary factors that, that mitigate against uh, conflict within emerging superorganisms. And if, if that's the case, then um, I think that that stands us in reasonable stead to avoid the sort of conflict that could destroy... Uh, the globalising of the human effort. And do to you be see... a bit more specific, Tim, what should we be doing as a superorganism to fight back for the planet? Well, there's the, the key factors, I think, one, um, increase the status and influence and educational levels of women globally because that feeds directly into the population question. We'd be much better um, uh, situated were global population to peak at 8 billion by 2050 rather than 9 billion. So we need to start aiming at that through those sort of programs. We need to foster democracy globally because that fosters peace and affluence. Uh, We need to move very strongly towards new clean technologies, and we're already starting that, but we need to start uh, moving further. And we need to take advantage of uh, the opportunities the social media offer us in terms of combating some of the global problems, pollution problems and so forth, that we see, and the use, of course, of, of unregulated commons. None of this is going to be simple, but I think that the the, the emergence of this um, uh, social media-mediated uh, globalisation is opens up opportunities that we're, we're probably not even aware of yet, some of them. But uh, I think that they offer us reason for hope. And you'd see climate change as the single most important challenge around uh, for humanity and its continued existence? Yeah, it's the one that could...
could threaten to destabilise us in the medium term over the next 40 to 50 years. I chaired the Copenhagen Climate Council for three years in the lead up to COP15 and know how difficult this stuff is. It's incredibly difficult. But um, but we are making progress. I think we can often be fixated on the wrong thing. So to be fixated on a global treaty, for example, to me is an irrelevance. Um, no one's going to send the blue berets in when Canada defaults on its Kyoto obligations next year. Uh, you know, so we need to work together, but be aware of the uh, the real politic, I guess, of the situation. It's certainly interesting, isn't it, even while countries like, as Clive was saying, the US seem to be pulling back, others like China, though they've resisted formal mandated targets, are actually doing quite a lot in a voluntary way at the moment. That's right. And, and could we say US Congress and Senate may be pulling back, but the Department of Energy and various states are actually doing quite a lot, and industry, of course, in the US. So it's never a simple story. Thanks, Tim. So from an optimistic environmentalist from Australia who's currently in London, let's now hear from a sceptical environmentalist who's a European but is currently in Australia. I caught up very recently with Bjorn Lomborg, the economist who's sometimes been criticised for his sceptical take on global warming. You were recently in the UK and here at the moment there's been this explosion of discussion and debate in the cultural arena, three separate plays going on at the moment around the issue of climate change. Do you get a sense there is a growing debate or has it shifted perhaps towards the cultural sphere but away from the policy sphere? I think it's very clear that it has shifted away from the policy sphere. In some ways you could say once they made an opera of Jerry Springer, it was already past his prime in his actual talk show. And of course, they never got around to make an opera over Al Gore and an inconvenient truth. So in many ways, this is one an, an interesting way to converse around global warming. But I think in reality, we really need to get back on track and say, what should we do about global warming instead of just entirely forgetting it? So as we move towards the next big UN gathering at the end of this year in South Africa. What's your sense about where the debate is going and where the focus really should be in terms of achievements and outcomes from that? I think the trend is, unfortunately, to just go on with business as usual. Nobody seemed to learn anything from the failure of Copenhagen. They just met next year in Cancun and said, let's try the same deal over again. And everybody applauded when we got the same miserable deal in Cancun. And of course, everybody's just going to go to South Africa and then Rio and essentially applaud that we don't get a deal. And for a very simple reason, you are not going to get most nations to sign up to have more expensive energy for very little environmental gain in 100 years. And that's why the focus should be on making much cheaper green energy available. We'll never succeed making fossil fuels so expensive nobody wants them. So we should focus on innovating the price of green energy technology dramatically down, because once that happens, everyone will buy it. If it's cheaper than fossil fuels, the Chinese, the Indians, everyone else will buy it. So that has to be the long-term solution. Your own focus, of course, the Copenhagen consensus over the last few years had also argued for a reprioritization between climate change issues and a number of other pressing priorities such as health in the developing world. Do you think nonetheless that your thinking's evolved a little bit in recent years? So you'd see now nonetheless a greater justification than in the past to focus, albeit in priority areas around climate change? If you look around the world, it's very clear that half this world's population don't have 
access to clean drinking water, sanitation, you know, just basic food and, and health care services. It's very clear that they have more pressing and immediate concerns than temperature rises in 100 years. So if we want to do good for a large part of this planet, it's about other things than global warming. But one of the things that the Copenhagen consensus has also been focused immensely on is trying to find smarter ways to tackle climate change. We asked 28 of the world's top climate economists and three Nobel laureates to look at where do you get the most climate bang for your buck, because we are going to spend money on climate, so let's spend it well. And what they found was that the standard approach, the Kyoto-style approach to cutting carbon emissions as the EU has promised and as many leaders have promised in the two degrees centigrade limit, that's an incredibly poor policy. For every dollar you spend, even if you do it really well, you will only avoid a couple of cents of climate damage. That's a poor way to spend your money. At the other end, they found the best long-term solution is to dramatically ramp up investment in research and development into green energy. Because if you can long-term get cheap green energy, everyone will switch. And so they found for every dollar spent on investment in green energy research and development, you avoid $11 of climate damage. So 500 times smarter. And that means you can spend less and you can solve much more. And what role for government in all this? Should it be directly funding? Should it create new incentives? Or should it just pull back and let private capital find those solutions? Because green energy really is a public good. We have to have public investment in the research. If I'm a private investor, I come up with an amazing way to cut the price of solar panels in half. It still doesn't help because they've just gone from being 10 times too expensive to five times too expensive. While it's a great social benefit that we've cut the cost, I can't, as a private investor, recoup that investment because they'll only really become effective in the next 20 to 40 years. And that's why we need public money, just like we do in medical research. Tim, what's your sense, this idea of the relative cost? Do you think it does make more sense to focus on making cleaner energy cheaper rather than focusing on cutting carbon emissions? Yeah, sure. Look, look, what I see around the world is that countries are doing both, and they really do need to do both in order to achieve the sort of emissions reductions we'll need to stay uh, on the safe side of dangerous climate change. Just to take my country of Australia, for example, we have a mandated renewable energy target of 20% that offers public funding for uh, green energy initiatives initiatives, uh, that's not going to get us to our minus 5% reduction target that we need to get to. So the government is considering on top of that a carbon tax or a, an emissions trading scheme, and together they will provide the, the, the trajectory we need to get to our minus 5% target. So I think, we, I think we've got to do both, quite frankly, and most countries recognise that. It's not simply one or the other. And obviously a lot of scientists have been very cautious to make any direct link between this sort of apparent recent rise in natural catastrophes, including the flooding in Australia and global warming directly. But do you think at least that's had an impact on the political process and the public debate within Australia? Well, look, could I just say that a weather event, you can never or very rarely can you relate it to climate. You're very fortunate here in the Northern Hemisphere to have a very, very long and detailed record. And that allowed researchers last month to link the floods in Wales in 2000 with climate change in a probabilistic sense. In Australia, we don't have that long record. Sure, these floods are outside the norm. Uh, sea surface temperatures are the highest they have ever been in record-keeping uh, record era. We can see all of that, but still, without the detailed statistical um, framework, it's very hard to link these floods with 
climate change directly. But nevertheless, they do give us an insight into the sort of future we may face if we trigger dangerous climate change as temperatures increase. And I do think they've, they, they have an impact. Um, in Australia, there has, at least for the last five or six years, been a strong constituency who, are, who want action on climate change. Many of our businesses, including our, the energy sector, also agree that a carbon price will be good for the transition. And I would, I'm kind of quietly confident that, uh, that this year we'll see some sort of action on climate change. The government certainly has a fairly uh, well-considered uh, well agenda. Clive, what's your sense? Do you think it's, um, the momentum is building again for some sort of new set of initiatives? I think it is. I mean, it's horrible, really, to wish for catastrophic weather, and I wouldn't do so, but there is no doubt that um, the hottest summer on record in the east coast of the US, for example, with temperatures over 100 degrees Fahrenheit for weeks on end in Washington would do wonders for the political process there. Okay, well now let's um, hear from our regular contribution from the BMJ. Over to Duncan Jarvis. Thanks, Andrew. Psychosis describes a constellation of symptoms, ranging from mild paranoia to full-blown hallucinations. Recent research has estimated around 3% of the population will have experienced symptoms of psychosis at some time. The condition seems to have a genetic component, a predisposition which may be triggered. One of those triggers is the use of psychoactive substances. The link between cannabis use and psychosis has been studied for some time. The evidence accumulated suggests that there is a link. Those who smoke cannabis are, on the whole, twice as likely to experience some symptom of psychosis at some point in their life. Though those studies have been able to show a link, they haven't been able to elucidate the direction of the association. If you have a predisposition, does smoking trigger it? Or does having the predisposition make you more likely to smoke? In the latest study of teenagers from Munich in Germany, Researchers have been trying to look at that. Can you show in a sample who've never had anything near uh, an expression of psychosis, can you show in these individuals that if they start using cannabis for the first time in their lives that they will have new onsets of uh, psychotic symptoms? And that actually was what this study allowed us to do. And you did find that there was a positive association? Yes, that's correct. Jim Van Os, one of the authors of the study. So, their research seems to show a positive link, which implies a causal one, though they're very careful to say that this is implied and that research doesn't actually prove it. One big problem with this kind of research is confounding. If you talk about cannabis and psychosis, then a confounder would typically be a variable that is associated with cannabis use, and independent of that is also associated with the occurrence of psychotic symptoms. So, for example... Other drug use would be a good candidate because, uh, say, amphetamine use tends to co-occur with cannabis use and, independent of that, it is also has a tendency to cause psychotic symptoms. Now, we were able to adjust for this type of other drug use and we were also able to correct for demographic variables that might act as confounders. Uh, The only thing that we weren't able to correct for was a familial history of psychosis because we didn't have good measures of family history. However, uh, previous studies, uh, adjustment for family history did not impact on the association. So we're fairly confident 
that as far as confounding goes, uh, there's no important residual confounding uh, with regard to this association. Finding this positive association is important, as we're still trying to understand the underlying mechanisms and causes of psychosis. But in the meantime, they point to a simple public health message. If you have a family history of psychotic disorder, if you have a personal history of mental ill health in any way, if you are younger than the age of 18 years, don't use cannabis. Back to you, Andrew. Thanks, Duncan. A sobering reminder that uh, even if we're stressed about global warming, smoking pot isn't necessarily an advisable form of escapism. Well, that's all we've got time for this week. Uh, Thank you very much to Tim Flannery in the studio and Clive Cookson in Paris. And thank you for listening. FT Science was produced by Rob Minto. I'm Andrew Jack. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com.